Well, good morning, saints. Happy Sabbath. Good to be back with you again, even though it's uh, in this recorded manner. It is good to be able to, uh, to be able to meet with you. I am very much looking forward to the time when I am standing in front of you and I can see your faces as I speak to you and I can meet you and talk to you and we can interact back and forth. I am really, uh, really looking forward uh, to that. I'm going to go ahead and pray. And if you would just bow your heads with me and pray with me as I, as I pray up here in the front. Father, we just bow before you now. And Lord, as we, we're in some very inconvenient circumstances right now that we're not able to meet. But Father, your Holy Spirit can bring us together. And so Lord, I just pray. I just pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would, would fill each of us in our homes, wherever it is that we're at while we're watching this. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just come to us and pull us together that we don't lose our sense of unity, our sense of togetherness, our, our sense of family. That is, Father, as we, as we allow your Spirit to pull us together, I just pray that as we open your word here this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would hold us close to you. And Father, as we have our time here together today, that as we come away from this, we'll be closer to you, more dedicated, more committed to you than when we started this here this morning. Father, please bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I am what I would consider, or what I call myself, an amateur historian. I'm a student of history. I love history. I, I wish I would have loved history as much as a young person as I do now. But I'm totally fascinated by history, and as I, as I see things that are transpiring throughout history, it sheds a lot of light on what we're seeing happening even today. Uh, one of the things that really fascinates me is not always just as much as what happened, but why. What were the events, the conditions, the circumstances that allowed these things to happen? One of the things that I've noticed that <clears throat> whether it's in, in good times or bad, whether it's in times of prosperity or in times of want, it really doesn't matter because the, the, the enemy of souls, the, the forces of evil, they have their own ways of trying to get us to be unfaithful, whatever the circumstances are. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 21, Jesus is speaking here, and he says in verse 21, he says, His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Verse 25, verse 23, just two verses later, he continues on with his parable. He says, as Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful. Notice the terminology. The terminology, good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. 
And so here there's a commendation. There, he had three servants. Two of them were, were faithful. Two of them did something with the talents that they were entrusted with. One of them did not. But the two that were, he says, well done, good and faithful. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. You see, God is faithful to us in all circumstances. God is always faithful to us. And because he is faithful to us, you see, it, it behooves us then to be faithful to him. And that's what Peter is talking about. Peter is talking about a time here, actually a persecution. Things were really tough. You know, right now things are tough and it's getting harder on people as this time goes on because people are running out of money. What money that they did have, what supplies they did have, they're running out and people are now starting to get desperate and people are suffering. And what, notice what Peter says. He says, therefore, let those who suffer, let those who suffer, he says, according to the will of God, commit their souls to him, to God, in doing good as to a faithful creator. And this reminds me of a statement that Jesus made that Luke records in Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. He says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Well, the answer to that is yes. Jesus is going to find faith on the earth. The question is, are we going to be found among the faithful? You see, that's the question. And that's the question every one of us must answer. Those are the choices that we have to make every day, every moment of our life. Are we going to be the ones that hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? I had a friend of mine because of the situation that's happening all around the world today with this virus, a friend of mine sent me a couple of statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. Uh, they're from Last Day Events on page 27. He says, God is not, where I should say, she says, God has not restrained the powers of darkness from carrying forward their deadly work of vitiating the air. One of the sources of life and nutrition with a deadly miasma. Not only is vegetable life affected, but man suffers from, and the next word she uses, pestilence. We would call it a plague. We would call it COVID-19. It's a plague. It's an infection. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that spreads from person to person. She says, these things are the result of drops from the vials of God's wrath, being sprinkled on the earth and are but a faint representations of what will be in the near future. And then she says, the very next paragraph, she says, famines will increase, pestilences will sweep away thousands, dangers are around us from the powers without and satanic workings within, but the restraining power of God is now being exercised. You know, people are are concerned, and rightfully so. Um, um, you know, my, my, my mother-in-law has been put into an assisted living home, and, and you, you can't even go visit her. If, uh, you know, you can't even go see her. And this is happening to a lot of people. You know, they're sick, they're in a hospital, or they're, in some cases, people are dying, and their family can't even come and see them. And this is really a, really a stressful time. 
And this week on Facebook, and I'm not a real big uh, Facebook person, uh, for, for those of you who have tried to friend me on Facebook, please don't take any offense at that. Uh, I, I have never posted anything on Facebook. I've never put a comment. I've never put a thumbs up. I have never put a response on Facebook. And, and so I, I, I don't know why anybody would want to follow me because there's really nothing to follow if I put it in there. But I had a friend of mine posted this on there. I can't remember who it was, and I wouldn't say it from the pulpit anyway, but this was, this was posted, and it was posted by a lady, a lady whose son sent her words of encouragement. Listen, she says, my, my youngest son sent this to me. He wrote it to encourage me in the midst of all that's happening. I hope it encourages someone here as well. God bless. And this is the letter that this person, this man, wrote to his mother. Dear Mom, I know the world is full of chaos, and it seems that it is a war zone. It is. Remember, the simplest answer tends to be the right one. It simply looks like the world is a war zone. That's because it is. It is pretty much a battlefield of a higher reality, and we are caught in the middle. Remember this. Although we are suffering and being ravaged, the battle is between two kingdoms, one of light and one of darkness. We are the casualties in a war that we were not meant to be a part of. Now, of course, there was the possibility, but it was not the ideal. When an enemy wants to get at the heart of the one they're fighting, they go after the ultimate object of their love. And for God, that object is us. We are more than mere objects to him, so the intensity of his love for us translates into an even more intensity of his fight for us. What's crazy is he would fight to the death for us, and so he did on the cross. And that was the decisive act of war in the kingdom of darkness, which in principle gained us our victory. We have now only to step into that reality, align our minds with that reality, and stand on the promise of that reality. Jesus sealed our victory. We now live it out. Fear is gone. Only love remains. And that is what empowers us, guides us, and unites us. We should be dwelling in and living outwardly the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I really was blessed by that. You know, I think that one of the greatest ploys that the devil has and I think the one that he uses most effectively is that he gets us to forget that we're in a war. And this war is far more deadly than any war in the history of this planet, including the world wars of the last century. You see, as the great controversy moves on to its conclusion, our Heavenly Father looks for his faithful ones. And the way I see it, I've, there, I think there is five simple ways or five basic ways that God uses to judge our faithfulness. And I've got those down as time, treasure, in, on, and how. Five different ways, five basic ways that God looks and sees, are we being faithful to him or not? The first one is time, time. 
Well, the real reality of it all is that all of our time really belongs to God. If it were not for God's grace, if it were not for God's benevolence, none of us would even have a breath that we could draw in. And so all of our time really, really belongs to God. But one-seventh of our time, God has specifically reserved for himself. Now, as Seventh-day Adventist, we, really above all people, should know the importance of the seventh day. And so the question I think that we need to be asking ourselves is, do we really keep the Sabbath in a way that brings honor and glory to God? Is it a day that we're keeping holy, or is it more like a holiday? Is it just a day off that we, can, that we use to do things that we can't do the other days of the week because we're working, but yet on that day it's not necessarily what would bring honor and glory to God, but we do get relaxed from it. In Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12, he says, Moreover, I, gave, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them, who sets them apart. He says, I gave them the Sabbath. It's a sign. He says very clearly, it is a sign that he is our God, that he is the one who has set us apart. Not that we're better than anybody else, but he sets us apart that all will know by what we are doing that we have given ourselves to God. Verse 20, he says, Hell of my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You see, the Sabbath, the Sabbath is the sign or the mark of God's authority. It identifies who he is. It's his, it's his claim to power. It's his claim of authority. Why? Because he is a creator. And because he created us, he says, listen, nothing would even exist in the universe if it were not for me. I want you to spend this one day reflecting on that very thing. Now, we also know that the issue regarding the mark of the beast is really, it's all over worship. And so a question I want us to be asking right now, you know, we have, a very, we have a very precious time right now that we can really spend time on reflecting. We, can, we have time, you know, where most of us can't go to work, we're stuck at home, we're, we're isolated from people around us, we're isolated from a lot of foreign things coming into our minds, or we can be unless we're sitting in front of the TV being mesmerized by that, by that tube we have in our living rooms. But something for us to think about, during this time that we should be doing some inner, inner thought process going on, if we are not hallowing the Sabbath now, if we're not really allowing that time for special fellowship to God to take place now, how can we possibly think that we will when the mark of the beast issue comes along? You follow me? You know, if, if, if we can't be faithful in times of a minor inconvenience, how will we think that we will be faithful when lives will be at stake? Something for us to think about. You know, <clears throat> it's easy to play the Christian game. It's easy to play the Christian game. We can put on our Sabbath clothes, put on our Sabbath face. We can talk our Adventist language. But what happens when the lights go out? 
What happens when there's nobody around? See, these, this is where it really matters. You know, we can hide, brother and sister, we can hide from each other. We can camouflage things as well as we want, but you can't hide from God. God sees in the innermost recesses of our hearts. And so we need to be able to give that, whatever it is, whatever it is that would separate us from, we need to give that to him now. The second point, second point that I see in this is treasure. This is a point where people usually get upset with me. <clears throat> they say, you know, you got no business sticking your, sticking your nose into my pocketbook. And you know what? I don't have to stick my nose in your pocketbook. <laughs> this is something between you and God. It's not between me and you. But God says that one-tenth of our increase is his. He claims it as his and his alone. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, it says, In all the tithe, the one-tenth of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. I want you to take your Bibles down. I hope you've got your Bibles when you're listening to this. I want you to turn to Judges, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 7. I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 7. <clears throat> It's an interesting story. You guys, I'm sure you're very familiar with this story because in chapter 6, we've got, this is the very first conquest of the children of Israel. Now they're going in, they're conquering the promised land. They've gone across the river and they have taken the city of Jericho. They've taken the city of Jericho by a miracle of God. And don't forget that. Don't forget that. You know, I don't know of anybody that can go out and yell and blow horns and have walls come collapsing down unless God is involved in it. And that's what we see happen. They marched around the city seven times. They stopped. They gave a shout. They blew the horns. The walls came down, and the city was taken by the children of Israel. Well, chapter 7, we come up to the, another, the next city. Ai was another city not far away from Jericho. In fact, it wasn't very far away at all, but it was a very small city. And they came to Joshua and said, listen, it's no need to trouble everybody. All we need is a handful. We can go up there. This came up so easy. We should be able to take this with no problem. So they did. They got a group of, of soldiers together. Up they went up against Ai, and they were beaten back. And some of their comrades were killed in the process. Well, Joshua can't understand what's going on. And if you read the story, uh, chapter 7 and verse 6, <clears throat> it says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So Joshua doesn't understand what's going on. And, and what I say is he's having a pity party now in front of the Lord. Why in the world would this have happened? How could you have allowed this to go on? Look at what happened. We were beaten. This is a small city. You just gave us his victory. Lord, I don't understand understand what's going on. What I love is God's response to Joshua. I just love his response. In verse 10, he says, so the Lord said to Joshua, notice what he says and the way he says it, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? He wasn't, <laughs> it, it, 
I don't think that was a response Joshua was expecting. But in verse 11, God explains why. He says, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their stuff. They were instructed very carefully that nothing of the booty from that conquest was to go into anybody's private larder. It was all to go to the Lord. It was to be stored there in the sanctuary. God had reserved that. That was first fruits of the land. God was reserving that for himself. Somebody in the camp, and you guys know the story, somebody in the camp had taken something that had been dedicated to God. The man's name was Achan. The man's name was Achan. So they went through a process of, of, of trial. They had, uh, well, they were casting lots, if you would, and it went down. It went from, from Carmi, it went to the, tri- the clan of Judah, and then they brought out the Zarites, and then they went to Zabdi, and from Zabdi, it went to Achan. In verse 18, it says that Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. In verse 19, it says, Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And then Achan confessed what he had done. He said, When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them, and, they are, and there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. And Achan, his family, they were taken out, they were stoned, they were burned with fire, and they were covered with a heap of stones. And it says that, therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Don't miss what happened. Achan. Achan took something that God claimed as his. And it not only cost him his life, it cost his family's life, and it caused the lives of soldiers who knew nothing about it because, you see, God's blessing had been withdrawn from the children of Israel. So when they went up there, they were fighting in their own power. And they were defeated before the enemy. By the way, you know, we're told in the spirit of prophecy that if you're doing everything, everything in your, that you can, and you're not growing the church of God, your church is not growing, she says you need to look for Achans in the camp. People that aren't faithful. True story. True story. We've got a Bible. We've got Bible to back that up. <clears throat> you see, and that's why when we talk about we talk about treasure, we talk about tithing, you know, some people think that this is something that's optional. There's no option in this, friends. Listen, this is this is a moral issue. If you want God's blessing, I just had somebody wrote me a, a letter from <laughs> somebody I met in the evangelistic series. Uh, when would that have been? About 16, 17, 17 years ago. 17 years ago this coming fall. Been in t- contact with him ever since. Uh, he's never made a decision. <laughs> never made a decision, but he stays in contact. 
And, uh, and so anyways, uh, this individual writes and, and says, um, you know, w- when I tithe, am I supposed to tithe on the gross or should I tithe on the net? And he said, I'm not, I'm not sure how that's going to So I wrote him back and I answered that, uh, you know, I answered that for him. Um, but you know, <clears throat> I, I think part of human nature, I think part of human nature is we try to find the way out instead of finding the way in. You understand what I'm saying? But we, we look for a reason. We look for, well, you know what? Maybe I don't necessarily have to do that. Listen, I'm a convert. I, I, I grew up in a Catholic home, and I, I went through Catholic schools, and I was an adult when I became a Seventh-day Adventist, and I'd met Seventh-day Adventists for eight years. For eight years, I tried to punch holes into everything that, that I was told because I didn't want to do it. My carnal nature did not want to do it. And so I looked for anything that I could to hang my head on and say, see, this is why I shouldn't have to do that. And really, that's one of the things I love about people when they bring objections when I'm doing an evangelistic series is, you know, some of the things that they come up with, I mean, my goodness, I came up with, I think in my mind, I came up with so much more harder things to answer than what they did. You know, I've been through this. I've grappled with this. And so when they come up with this, there is not very many objections that I didn't go through in my own journey. But when it comes to tithing, when it comes to our, our pocketbook, you know, we seem to by the way, did you know that scientists have discovered a new nerve in the human body? They didn't even know it existed before. Yeah, it is. Serious. It's, uh, it's, it's, an unusual, it's an unusual thing, and I don't know how they discovered it, but they found that there was a nerve that ran from the heart to wherever it is that we keep our pocketbook. And whenever there's an offering, a call for an offering, <laughs> and we go to reach for our pocketbook, there's a sudden jolt that hits our heart trying to keep us from, uh, from doing that. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, he says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Don't ever forget that, friends. Don't think God is different. The God in the Old Testament is different from the God in the New Testament. He says very clearly, I am the Lord, I do not change. Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. That's part of divinity. That's part of why we can trust him, because he doesn't change. Can you imagine worshiping a God that every day he comes up with a different personality? God doesn't change. He says, therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances, have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? And then he asked them a question. He said, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? He says, in tithes and offerings. And then he says, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And then he challenges them. He said, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I'll rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed for you will be a, a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. You know, when it comes to this issue of, you want to call it stewardship, call it treasure, whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> now, if you've studied your Bibles, if you've studied end time events, 
you know that we are going into a time of trouble that the Bible says such as never was since there was a nation. And when I talk to people, and I talk to Seventh-day Adventists all over the United States, literally I do, I have people call me from all over the United States, the question that we need, we want to be able to trust God 100% during that time of trouble, right? I mean, how many of us want to trust God 100% during that time of trouble? Everybody wants to. Of course we do. But let me ask you something. Do we really think that we'll trust God with 100% then if we're not willing to trust him with 10% now? You follow me? See, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our money. He wants us to learn to trust him with every aspect of our lives. You know, we go through things in life and we wonder, well, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Why is this, you know, sometimes we're kind of like what Joshua, we almost have our own little pity party. Why is this happening to me? But you know, God allows things to happen to us so that we can be strengthened. You know, faith is like a muscle. If you never use a muscle, it will atrophy and die. But if you exercise your faith, just like if you exercise a muscle, it will respond to that exercise and it will become stronger and stronger. You ever notice that? People who you sit back and you admire, man, they've really got faith. Why do they really have faith? <laughs> because they really walk by faith. And they really will test God. I, I challenge you, if you are not tithing, if you are not tithing, put God to the test. I have never seen him fail in this yet. I've seen people get jobs. They, they, they gave their last dollar in tithe and they got a job like two days later, a job that they didn't even know existed. So, you know, trust God, trust God. In the end, friends, that's all you are going to have to trust. You're not gonna be able to trust each other. You're not gonna be able to trust anybody. All your trust is gonna be strictly in God and in God alone. That's enough for number two. Let's go on to number three. And that's in. That's in. You say, man, what in the world are you talking about in? Well, I'm going to talk about what we put in our bodies. What do we put in our bodies? Now, the Bible tells us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, what we place in our bodies, how we take care of our bodies, really testifies to who is important in our lives. You know, there's a lot of people who take better care of their vehicles than they do themselves. But that's really not honoring God, no, is it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes here, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The chapter 6, three chapters later, verses 19 and 20, he says, Or you, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, For what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us how we would glorify God. He said, therefore, whether you eat or drink, and whatever you do, you know, <clears throat> we got in this whole mess over eating. You realize that. Garden of Eden. You know, there was nothing inherently wrong with the fruit. 
The only thing that was wrong with the fruit is God said, this is mine, you can't have it. And when they took of the fruit, we've had 6,000 years of sin, suffering, and misery. Wars and pestilence and all the evil that's come on this earth is simply because they refuse to trust God and only eat what he said that they should eat. I'm running out of time before I'm running out of out of material here. Number four. Let's go to number four. <clears throat> I don't think I need to. I, you guys probably know more about what to eat and what not to eat than I do, but that is one of the ways that God tests us. Number four is one that I usually get criticized for, and that's what we put on our bodies. On. You know, the Bible gives us standards of dress and adornment. In First Peter chapter 3, Peter says in verses 2 to 4, he says, when they observe your chaste conduct, your lifestyle accompanied by fear, he says, do not let your adornment merely be outward. You know, the arranging of hair, the wearing of gold, or putting on a fine apparel. But, he said, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. You know, people see us, do they notice us for what we're wearing or do they notice us for what we are, for who we are? When somebody sees you, do they know what kingdom that you're representing? First Timothy, Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. He says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Now, you know, there, it, it, there seems to be a habit that, that, that the finger gets pointed at women when it comes to immodesty. But listen, guys can be just as immodest in their dress as women do. And so this is not just a one gender thing. This is something that really applies universally, whether it's man or woman. And guys, listen. Listen, before you think you're too high on the, on the, on the band stage on this, if you weren't looking, they wouldn't be dressing. You get my drift? You know what I'm saying. If we kept our eyes where they were supposed to be, you wouldn't see these things that are taking place. Maybe I'll have another sermon on that on another time, but, but that's true. That's true. If, if nobody paid any attention, you wouldn't see any of this stuff going on. And the, and the styles of today are getting worse and worse and worse. And it's on both, both men and women. He says, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. You see, friends, the bottom line is, whether it's what we eat, what we drink, whether it's what we wear, how we adorn ourselves, we are not to reflect the habits of the kingdom of this world. We are to reflect the habits of the kingdom we hope to inhabit one day. You know, I have people telling me, so, well, Tom, but that's what the culture, that's what culture tells us to do. I mean, it's, that, well, that's my, that's my culture. Well, let me tell you something. <clears throat> the cultures of this world are going to burn up in the lake of fire. When I became a Christian, when I gave my heart to Jesus, you know, I grew up as a Polish Catholic. If you don't know anything about Polish Catholics, in Poland, in Poland, if you become anything but Catholic, they don't even consider you Polish anymore. It's that ingrained. My dad told me, he says, listen, he says, my father was Catholic, his father was Catholic, his father was Catholic, and I'm Catholic, and if you're not going to be Catholic, you'll have no part of this family, okay? But 
when I accepted Jesus, you see, I took that Polish culture and I laid that aside. And I took the culture of Jesus, the culture of his kingdom. That's the difference. We're not to reflect what's going on in this world. This world is going to burn up in all the works that are in it. The only thing we're going to take out of here is the character that we allow Jesus to develop in us that reflects his goodness, his love, his compassion, his traits of character. And so we need to be reflecting the character. We need reflecting the, the kingdom in, in everything we do, the kingdom that we hope to inhabit one day. Number five, I said, was treat. Was treat. And that is how we treat other people. <clears throat> how do we treat other people? You know, how are we with people in business? How are we in people in dealings? How are we with people when we see them that are hungry? How do we treat other people? Do we treat other people the way Jesus did? In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, Jesus said, he says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophecy. We refer to that as the golden rule. We've even got a title for what that principle is. Luke records it this way, and he says, And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. You know, in my, in my studying of history, <clears throat> I've read a fair amount about the Holocaust. And I find it interesting that during that time, during that time when millions of Jews were being rounded up and marched into, uh, they started out shooting them, but that was too expensive, and then they went to gas chambers and they were gassing them. Just, it, was, it was an industrialized um, execution that they, were, that they were carrying out. But what I found very interesting is during that time, some would go to their Jewish neighbors and they would turn them in. They would turn them in, they would be able to loot their houses or whatever, you know, but, but they would go around and they would turn in their Jewish neighbors knowing that their Jewish neighbors, these were people they might have been friends with for years, but when it came down to it, they turned into their neighbors. Others, on the other hand, would take them into their homes and they would hide them for as long as they could at peril of their own lives. You got one group would turn them in, not give a second thought. Another group would put their lives on the line to save these Jewish people who were being hunted down and exterminated strictly because of their nationality. Both groups, both there were people in both groups, considered themselves to be Christian. Yeah. There were Christians that were turning in Jews. Just like in Rwanda, there were Christians that were murdering other Christians because they happened to be from another tribe. Well, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure out or to ascertain which of those two groups were living by the principles of the golden rule. In Galatians, Paul's got a, he's got a number of 11 verses here that are, are really profound. They're really profound. In Galatians chapter 5, he said, For all the law 
is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Well, there he's got gossip in there. <clears throat> now, I know this would never happen in any of our churches. You know, there'd never be such a thing as gossip. <clears throat> you know what's amazing to me <clears throat> is how quickly bad news can travel. Bad news makes its way all around the world before good news gets its slippers on in the morning. It's amazing. It really is. You let something bad happen, it seems like everybody knows what. Something good happens, nobody hears about it. He said, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, lust, the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But... If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are. And Paul goes on to list a whole litany of works of the flesh. He says adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he gives a whole list of things. He says that those who are practicing those things, they're not going to be there. They're simply not going to be there. But he said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, he says, let us also walk in the Spirit. Sound counsel. Sound counsel. You see, it doesn't matter if times are good or times are bad. Our attitude, our lifestyle, not our standard of living, but how we live our, live our lives should not change. We should be the same whether we are, are suffering persecution. We should be the same whether we are suffering want as we are when we have plenty. You really should. Jesus said to love your enemies. That's a hard thing to do. Easy to love somebody that's nice to you. Jesus says that's a natural thing to do. Jesus loved those that were putting the nails in his hands. Jesus loved those that betrayed him. He, 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 he told Judas, he says, friend, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He says, love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he is, un he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he said, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, tender-hearted. You know, we live in an age where 
it, it seems like the value of life is just dissipating. Um, tenderheartedness, you know, we, 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 we watch things, our, our, our entertainment, what we call entertainment is really no better than what the Romans had in the Colosseum. Now ours is done through graphics and, and through trick photography and stuff where they did it for real, but it's the same effect. We watch, we watch immorality and we watch blood and guts and we watch all this violence and stuff. It numbs the spiritual mind. He says, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another. I have been in churches, of course as an evangelist I get to speak in a lot of different churches, but I've been in churches where people have hated each other for decades. They attend the same church. They won't talk to each other. They won't look at each other. They won't shake hands with one another. They will have nothing at all to do with each other. And yet, and yet, they're members of the same church? Really? forgiving one another, and then he says, just as God in Christ forgave you. Well, friends, listen, nobody, nobody is going to be in heaven that is mean, cranky, selfish, vulgar, rude, or a backbiter. Don't have to worry about not seeing someone. I was doing Bible studies, which I just thought this story just came to me. I was doing Bible studies with a couple and this lady had a number of things that was, you know, she had, some, she had some tough knocks in her life. She had some people that were really mean to her, people that had really treated her really wrong. <clears throat> and we got onto the subject of the destruction of the wicked. <clears throat> she was so upset about that because it, what she wanted to be able to do was through all eternity, she wanted to be able to walk over to the edge of the pit of hell and watch the people who had done her wrong suffer and writhe in the pain of the fire, and that was going to be her enjoyment for all eternity. I don't think she has to worry about much on that. <clears throat> not only is there not going to be an eternally burning hell, but if that's really your attitude, you know, Jesus said, we should forgive as we are forgiven. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so we need to be, we need to be kind, we need to be loving, we need to be tenderhearted, we need to be willing to forgive just as God in Christ forgives us. You see, when we violate, when we violate any of the biblical principles, what we're actually doing is we're putting ourselves in the place of God. We, our reason, our rationale becomes a God to ourselves. And really, we are in violation of the very first of the Ten Commandments. And so we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful on these things. And so as we go through this, this period of confinement, I think that it's important that regardless of the stresses that we're going through, that we don't forget who we are, why we are here, and most importantly, that we don't forget who it is that we represent. And brothers and sisters, it is really my sincere prayer that whatever the circumstances, whatever, whatever the circumstances, that we will be found faithful and that we, every person that hears us will hear those words from our Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Father, 
We looked at a lot of things here this morning, Lord. We looked at some of the things where really the rubber meets the road. How does it play out in our real lives? How does it play out in our daily lives in how we treat each other and how we treat the body you've given us, how we treat the things you've entrusted with us, how we treat the time that you give us? Father, I, I pray that this is not taken in the wrong way. Father, my desire is to see everybody in the kingdom of God, everyone who will, if he would come and take freely of the water of life. Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts. And if there's anything, anything in any of our lives, Father, may we give that to you, allow you to refine that out of our lives, that, Lord, that we may walk with you all the way under those streets of glory. Father, please bless us now. Bless our families. Keep us safe. Keep our loved ones. Keep our loved ones safe. Keep us healthy. My goodness, with this virus going around, Lord, you have protected so well in our, in our conference here. Father, please continue to protect us. Continue to draw us to you. May we see you clearer and clearer. May each one of us on that day look up and say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We will rejoice in his salvation. Father, may we be faithful to the end, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.